Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Payne Lehman, I follow the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor, City Journal. I'm Aaron Severio, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And Aaron, how are you doing today? Charles, I am a bit tired. I feel like sometimes, often on this podcast, you're, you're, you're the low energy one, but, but recently I felt like I'm the low energy one. I just, I haven't had a ton why, of energy. Why are you low energy, Aaron? What, why what is- am I low energy? Yeah. I am not totally sure. Probably just hard work and, you know, you know, I'm always working hard and being productive and efficient. So, you know, so, he's, some, he's some of us don't have the, don't have, some of us don't have the time to, to do, to, to just luxuriate and get, get all the rest that you have, Charles. Yeah. No, but I'm, yeah, I'm really. fine. I don't want to tell you how many times my kid was up last night. Oh, oh, yeah, no, I, I, I actually, uh, it makes me feel bad. I don't really have a good excuse. Okay. It's okay. Um, it's okay. Yeah. You don't have a, so yeah. you, you're, you're working hard. Yeah. 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 If you no, don't have a kid, I, you can't really talk about this. No, stuff. I know. <laughs> I can't really, but in any, but in any case, you know, feelings of lethargy, I find unwelcome impositions that I try to avoid, but many people actually crave this feeling of being kind of tired <laughs> and mellow Aaron, and not Aaron, having much energy or focus Aaron. and not being that productive. Charles, on that note, yes, yes, this is... I, Aaron I told gets, you I gets his eyes off of transitions. This is what gets him. Indeed, this is what gets out of bed in the morning. So on the subject both of lethargy and on the subject of highs, Charles, what are we talking about today? Aaron, this week we're talking about marijuana legalization. Yeah, you know, marijuana marijuana is legal in 19 states in the District of Columbia. It's on the ballot in another five states in November. It remains nominally federally legal, although it hasn't really been meaningful federal enforcement since the middle of the Obama administration, kind of the Trump administration will bracket that. And recently, President Joe Biden pardoned a number of federal marijuana, prior marijuana offenders, and also separately signaled a possibility of rescheduling, i.e. changing legal status of marijuana under the Controlled Substances Act, which is possibly a shift towards legalization. It's really clear how that's going to play out. Even bracketing that status, legal marijuana market has taken off what was once a back alley industry is now a thriving uh, enterprise, although it still struggles to compete with the illegal market. That increase in availability has been reflected in an increase in use, particularly among young adults. Recent data from the Monitoring the Future survey found this is a proportion of 19 to 30-year-olds reported past month marijuana use up significantly over the past decade. When that increase is highest among the most frequent users, so the more you use, the more you use. The rise in marijuana legalization seems inevitable, but is that a good idea? Is that something we should want? What are the pros and cons of marijuana legalization? How should we think about it? How should we think about the regulation of marijuana drugs and vices more generally? Aaron, what's your take on today's topic? Yeah, you know, so I don't really have a super strong view on whether all things considered legalization is a good idea or not, but I do have a very strong view on whether we should be using the tax proceeds from like legalization to fund public services. My view is that's a ridiculous idea. What the hell are you thinking? And but to me, this gets at a broader issue, which is, you know, since pot's been legalized, a lot of states have used 
the tax revenues for marijuana to fund things like education. In fact, in California, there's like this, some California organization called Cal Matters basically says cannabis taxes are the only guaranteed revenue stream in the state budget for childcare for children from birth to 13 years old. Wow. The only guaranteed revenue stream. And then it goes on to say, you know, the cannabis industry is now lobbying for state tax cuts. And that's bad because that will, you know, cut funding for children's education. And of course, it's like, yeah, but but the whole reason we're in that position in the first place is because you decided to make children's education dependent on the tax proceeds for marijuana, right? A drug that obviously, you know, whatever the costs and benefits are, it's not great for kids. So I, I think this is a deeper problem. You can think about it in terms of prostitution too, but like all sorts of vices when you legalize them and when you prop the state profits from them, it creates all sorts of perverse incentives. And I'm interested in sort of the extent to which that's inevitable and the extent to which given that pot legalization, it has already mostly happened and is and further legalization is on the horizon. How do we kind of constrain that obvious perverse incentive? Charles, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I've I've related a little broader interests. Marijuana is, to me, interesting. I mean, you know, I, I spend a lot of time on drug policy, and it's very easy to convince people that a lot of drugs are bad because they have obvious immediate uh, health and life harms associated with them. If you, if you do too much heroin, you die. If you do too much meth, you die. It's actually kind of hard to die from marijuana overdose. It's like maybe it's happened, but it's it's fairly challenging. The, and so the, the adverse harms of marijuana are more subtle. The harms of marijuana are more subtle, they're longer term, and so it involves a more complicated moral calculus in terms of the the long-run harms of marijuana versus sort of general presumption that people should be free to consume what they want to consume, which runs up against this drug habit, which is like, how do we think about vice? How do we think about things that are not, you know, how how do we, living in a in a classically liberal society, as we still sort of do, how should we think about permitting people to do things that are harmful to themselves and what society's interest is in controlling those things both for those people and for society itself. You know, I think I I think this gets sort of fundamental political questions, but which I hope we'll get to a little bit today. It's very, it's a very light topic. I think our guest is a great guy to discuss all these topics and more with is our guest. Kevin Sibet is the president of Smart Approaches to Marijuana, SAM, an organization which opposes the legalization of marijuana and advocates for smarter marijuana policy. He has studied, researched, written about, and implemented drug policy for almost 20 years, including work in the Office of National Drug Control Policy under three presidential administrations. Kevin, welcome to Institutionalized. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So we like to we like to open with sort of a, a provocative question to our guest, and I think I think your organization, you know, I, your your stance has generally been hostile to or skeptical of broad based marijuana legalization. So I'm going to ask you: There's this concept of of the steel man. It's the opposite of a straw man. It's you know making making the strongest case for something. So what is the steel man in your mind of the case for legalizing marijuana? If you wanted to, if, if somebody was to convince you we should legalize marijuana, what would be the argument that you would find most persuasive? Probably the argument is that, you know, it seems that most people want to re- reduce restrictions on marijuana and or they think, even I'll argue, they think wrongly that marijuana is relatively harmless and that we have other things we should be focusing on. And so just kind of go ahead and let it happen. Most people are probably fine with it. That's probably the best argument for it, even if I don't find it persuasive. Fair enough. It's 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 there's there's a democratic case for it. Yeah. So 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 let's imagine then that you're talking to those voters. Give mm. us your before we get into sort of the nitty gritty. Give us your succinct case of 
why you think that majority is wrong. Well, I think the majority, I think the majority is wrong because they're probably thinking about, they're conflating decriminalization and legalization. And they're not thinking about what the impact of actually selling marijuana in your neighborhood at a pot shop, which is near your kid's school, library, in the community, smelling it every day and around you, what the impact of that is. And so I think in theory, sort of seems like, yeah, it seems okay, it's fine. But I think the strongest case is sort of if you could present to people what it actually looks like and to convey the idea that, you know, the marijuana they're thinking about is not the marijuana that they might have used before. It's very different today. It's so much more potent. So the THC level, which is the, you know, what gets you high is just much more concentrated. So I think that that would be the best counter to that. Well, well, so before we get into kind of the, the, the policy debate, you know, it's striking to me how quickly Mm. the conversation about weed has changed. I mean, it Mm. really was not that long ago that criminalizing it, or at least, you know, kind of Mm. wanting to put the brakes on legalization seemed like, okay, that was a normal, respectable Mm. position. Increasingly, it seems to me that the default among not just liberals, but among a growing number of conservatives is, well, yeah, you know, of course we should legalize it, or at least, you know, come on, you know, Marijuana, what's the harm? You worked for three different presidents doing drug policy. Could you sort of give us a very quick history overview of how this conversation has evolved and how we got to the point where there seems to be such a powerful elite consensus in favor of marijuana? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, you know, this movement started in earnest in the 1960s when we, you know, obviously the the sort of counterculture generation, one of the big pushes, the sort of you know, if you were if you didn't love Richard Nixon, then you, you know, you wanted to legalize marijuana in the 60s and 70s. And so had a big push and they almost got it over the finish line. I mean, President Carter at the time essentially argued for the decriminalization at a national level and really moving towards legalization. And for a bunch of really interesting reasons that, you know, we won't necessarily get into right now. President Carter, at the end of his presidency, quickly changed his mind. We basically had a scandal with his drug czar. And also was worried about reelection. And so changed his mind. Obviously, Reagan conservatism was ushered in, you know, very strongly. And we had the just say no era, which was really the 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 baby boomers that had wanted legalization in the 60s and 70s, they all of a sudden had kids and a job. And they realized that, you know, what they did, you know, tripping on LSD and falling out of trees and getting high on weed was just not something that was compatible with you know, sort of working and parenting in a Reagan America. And so there was a big backlash and it's it stalled the legalization movement. You know, it just, it just screeched it to a halt. And the legalization movement really thought, okay, well, we're sort of a bunch of ex-hippies that almost got it, but now we're so far from it. What do we do? And essentially coming out of San Francisco and with the AIDS movement came the idea of medical marijuana. And I think for some people, this was really an earnest response to their friends dying and not being able to eat at the last days of life. And we know that THC works on the part of the brain that regulates appetites while you get the munchies. And so they thought, you know, we we need this. This is medicine. And actually, interestingly, the National Cancer Institute fast-tracked a marijuana-based drug, THC, a THC pill in 1985. We actually had a Schedule II drug in 1985 and we still have it called Marinol. That was used a lot. A lot of it was used for that, sometimes for cancer chemotherapy, nausea related as well. And basically, the, the, the movement to legalize realized, wait a minute, 
we have something here with this thing called medical marijuana. We put the word medical in front of it and, you know, way beyond AIDS patients, this can be much more normalized and widespread. And so they happened to find a few billionaires that agreed with them. They got kind of lucky. And you had a Princeton professor at the time by the name of Ethan Nadelman, who was on TV debating Bill Bennett in 1990, talking about how we need to legalize all drugs. He had done a thesis on the sort of internationalization of the drug war. He didn't like what he saw, that we had cops overseas. He was sort of a, sort of a libertarian at heart and realized that, wait a minute, we got we to gotta fight this. And so the AIDS movement with medical marijuana and then the legalization movement, sort of the philosophical movement, really came together in the early to mid-90s when a few billionaires like George Soros, but also Republic, sort of libertarian right-wing billionaires like Peter Lewis, who founded Progressive Insurance, and John Sperling, who founded the University of Phoenix, those guys happened to realize that they like marijuana and they used it for various things. They realized it later in life, interestingly enough. And so they contacted Ethan Nadelman. He was the only guy willing to take on Bill Bennett and say we should legalize cocaine, you know, and, and marijuana. And they, they called the one guy saying this and said, we'd like to help you. And so that's when it all converged in 1996 in my home state of California. And I was there for it with the vote for medical marijuana. And it was very interesting at the time. You had so much pushback by sort of the establishment. You had every living president, including Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, uh, uh, Bush, write a letter saying we should not legalize medical marijuana because it's a Trojan horse for full legalization. It's the last time I remember all those presidents coming together. Really interesting fact. So they did that. They had a ton of opposition, but they but the billionaires won the day because they had most of the money. And a lot of people thought we'll never pass medical marijuana. This is ridiculous. It's such a badly written law like this can't ever pass. The FDA has said, forget about it. Like this is just crazy. You don't smoke medicine. There were so many reasons. And I think the anti-side was so sure of itself that this is not going to get momentum. And boy, were they wrong. Boy, did they misjudge the power of money, <laughs> the power of all of this. And then from there, you had this wave, right, of medical marijuana. And then sure enough, as intended, and it was very much intended, that were, was to lead the way to full legalization and to really soften our feeling towards marijuana, that actually it's very helpful and it's great. And even today, you hear arguments about legalization couched in medical terms. You sort of, this was good for PTSD, this helped me get off opioids, whatever. So yeah, anyway, that so that that's essentially where we are today. I would push back a little bit. I do think like most conservatives, I, at least on the right, you do see, you know, mainstream conservatives like Tom Cotton and Kevin yeah. McCarthy and others that are very skeptical. They see marijuana legalization as part of a push to sort of be soft on crime that they kind of put it together with that. I mean, obviously there it's a diverse, it's diverse. And, and obviously you have Democrats not in favor of legalization too. You have the president of the United States who's still opposed to legalization. You have, you know, some sort of the moderate democratic wing, you know, the New Hampshire Senate delegation, you know, you have some of those folks that are really, you know, Diane Feinstein mm -hmm. never liked it. She sort of had to swallow it when California did it. She still doesn't like it. I know that. So you still have kind of that moderate wing holding on. But yeah, the, the truth of the matter is you certainly have so much more support than you did. But it was really brought on by the medical movement. It seems like, you know, judging from the history you just laid out, people like Tom Cotton, you say it's a slippery slope, are, are there's some history to support that, right? Because yeah. the, you, oh, what yeah. you're saying is a bunch oh. of people warned it was a slippery slope. People said, haha, no, it will never happen. And then exactly what the kind of crotchety conservative said would happen happens. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, look, so the truth. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, the truth. Yeah. It's, you know, the true believer 
marijuana folks are the ones that think it's like the savior for everything. I mean, they were never, I mean, I give them credit. They were very open from the beginning. I mean, Keith Stroop, who was the head of Normal, which was the main lobbying Oregon, it's not anymore, but it used to be for marijuana, essentially said, you know, we will use medical marijuana. And he used the word as a red herring. I mean, he literally used that phrase as a red herring to legalize <laughs> marijuana nationally. He was very open. Whereas Ethan Nadelman and the sort of sort of politically savvy, you know, these folks, and even George Soros is quoted as the saying, never use the L word. I mean, now they use it, but never use the L word couch these things in policies that most Americans can get around like medical marijuana. So they were, for them, it was really that political tactic. But anyway, regardless, here we are today. So let me let me ask about your perception of what's happening on the ground because you know I think I think that there would be promises when when legalization started rolling out Colorado and Washington in 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 a number of states now the the promises are always essentially the same it'll be a burgeoning industry it'll be major source of tax revenue it'll crush the illegal market it'll sort of drive out any criminality associated with the drug trade more generally it'll be massively it'll be massively ameliorative to mass incarceration. How do you think that legalization has actually played out thus far in the states that have legalized? Well, I mean, look, it's no surprise that I'm going to say that I'm very skeptical about how it's been played out. I think it's been, you know, look, the, the, the legalizers defend it by saying the sky hasn't fallen. I mean, I never said the sky was going to fall. No one was <laughs> said that, but we said that there would be some negative consequences and you would, the promises aren't there. So first of all, on tax revenue, it's still less than 1% of anybody's, any state budget. It is a drop in the bucket. And even sort of more earnest legalizers say, don't do this for the tax revenue. That's not the reason to do it. Number two, incarceration rates for, and sort of probation, parole violations, that kind of thing for marijuana have not gone down because they've legalized marijuana. I mean, incarceration has not never been linked to low level marijuana use. That's why, you know, so many people were so surprised when President Biden did what the pardon and then they were asked, well, how many people will this release in prison? And they said none. Because there's nobody there for for low level possession, and on the state level, there's very few people there for low level possession, right? So, and you know, you're the expert on that, Charles. You eloquently talked about that. So, you know, that hasn't really happened. There's been a reduction for arrests, sure. When you legalize something, you don't arrest as much for that crime, but there's been an increase in arrests for other things like DUI related to marijuana. And in fact, the DUI rates have gone up. It's very difficult to sort of ascribe causation with why somebody got into a car crash, but you know, when you look at those who tested positive in high amounts for THC, undisputedly, that number has gone up. I mean, was that the only cause? Very hard to say, but those numbers have gone up. The illegal market in most of the big market states like California is booming. And people say, well, why is that? Like you legalize something, why is there an illicit market? Well, like we've even seen with gambling in some states, like in sports betting, when you le when you increase the demand through legalization, which we definitely have done, then you know the legal market just cannot keep up, and that's what's happening in California and these other places. It's just the illegal market. There's just much more savvy. They're much more able to go around. They don't have to deal with the rules. They can sell it for cheaper than the legal market, which has to tax it at certain rates. They don't have to do the compliance checks and all of that. So their cost of business is actually a lot lower. And so, you know, there you have it. I also think that states have just done a very poor job of regulating it. I would have actually liked to say, look, at least if you're an adult who wants marijuana, you can like be assured of the quality control and you don't have mold and pesticides and all these things. The reality is it's it's a real joke. I mean, these states are not set up to be 
they're not set up to have their own FDA mechanisms to ensure safety and quality. And, you know, in my book, my last book, Smokescreen, I interviewed, you know, sort of owners of labs that, that are contracted with states. And the ones that were able to talk to me essentially said the whole process is a farce. I mean, it's like, you know, we sort of say whatever, like we sort of estimate things and we kind of, there's not really a scientific basis. We're trying to get things to market. We work for the retailers. So we need to be, we have an incentive to, to sort of hurry things up. So the regulation just has been also very poor. But I think my biggest concern is there's just been an overall massive order of magnitude increase in the volume of marijuana consumed. And when you talk to, you know, very independent researchers like John Calkins out of Carnegie Mellon, who yeah. essentially, yeah, who essentially set up RAND, you bet you, the RAND drug policy program was one of the few ar you know, architects to do that. I mean, he essentially, you know, says that there's just so many more thousands of hours of intoxication yeah, that's happened recently. He, he does a great comparison where he says the typical marijuana user 20 years ago was somebody who essentially, if you compare it to caffeine consumption, essentially drank a, a bottle of 20 ounce bottle of Coke. Now that same, that average user is, is imbibing when 30, you know, Starbucks cappuccinos worth of caffeine. That's the difference in the THC level of the average user now. So we're, we're encouraging that. And I just think we need to step back as a society and ask if we really want to do that. So I want to I want to get to that sort of bigger question of how we think about encouragement discouragement. Let me practice that for one second and talk about something that you emphasize sometimes that I think is an important part of the, con the conversation, which is the effects of commercialization of marijuana. Mm, right? Yes. You know the you know one 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 argument for legalization is it would be it's beneficial because it keeps it keeps criminals away from from marijuana. And I think, you know, the other side of the ledger is it means that large firms, let's imagine Amazon, can sell marijuana hypothetically. Do you, what do you, what do you see? What do you see as the trade-off there? What do you see as the costs and benefits? Well, I think the best argument against the legalization of marijuana in the United States is that it will unleash a new sort of co corporate behemoth that has very little regard to public health. And, and that's a very persuasive argument, especially for liberals who, you know, I mean, rightfully so, are the ones that led the conquest against big tobacco. And when we learned that, you know, tobacco was lying to us for about a, about 80 years since they knew about the cancer-causing harms of marijuana. There's actually, by the way, more carcinogens in today's marijuana than there are in filtered cigarettes, interestingly enough. But we're essentially seeing this movie play over, right? Re you know, just repeat itself. And, you know, I, I love my, my fellow sort of PhD friends who are saying, well, you know, we could do it differently and we can have a non-commercial model. There are a lot of models, theoretically. And yes, theoretically, there's a lot of things that we could do, but we're not doing them and we don't do them well in the United States, you know, if we cared about public health, we, we would have a non-commercial model for alcohol. Alcohol is the most ubiquitous drug in society. It, it, it's connected to criminal justice and frankly, social injustice much more than any other elite, than any illegal drug. It's connected to crime more than any drug. You know, you can talk about its costs all, all day long. And the reality is, you know, we don't regulate that very well. We haven't even had a real tax increase federally on alcohol since, you know, before the Korean War, okay, so if you adjust for inflation. So the idea that we're going to like get it right and do it like in the way that like five really smart people from like, you know, with PhDs tell us to do it. I wish that was the case. I would love to do that. I, I, you know, but, but that's not the case. It's, you know, it's, this is now being essentially owned by big alcohol, big tobacco, and just interests that want to see a bottom line. That's their job. I mean, I don't, that's, that's what you do in business. You want profit. 
And if you want to be profitable, you have to commercialize, you have to, you know, advertise, you have to downplay any harm or risk. You have to deny harm and risk, even when you know about it. And, and we're sort of, this is just repeating itself. And I do think that when voters hear that, when liberals hear this, they are very skeptical. I mean, I've talked to many high level folks in the Democratic Party that sort of say, yeah, whatever, I don't know, it's no big deal. What do you, what do you think? And, I, and then when I bring up the corporatization argument, they're always blown away. And they're like, you're right, we should slow down. But, you know, unfortunately, that's not happening. What, I mean, so, but one thing that I think you might get in response to that is, okay, you're saying alcohol is even worse mm. than this thing mm. that you don't want to be legal. So why mm. shouldn't we go back to prohibition? I mean, maybe not the way that we did it, but, but like, yeah. it does seem like your argument I, yeah. I think this is actually a big thing for for anecdotally for a lot yes. of people I know. There is just is. a sense of of it, like the objection is it, it's fundamentally irrational public policy right. for alcohol to be legal, yeah. but pot yeah. not to be. Like, how right. do you resolve that? Right. Well, that, you're 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 spot on with that assessment in terms of the appeal of it. In fact, when the legalization movement was essentially, uh, you know, focus grouping messages, you know, because they wanted to say, well, it's going to cure every disease and it's going to the hemp industry is going to like be the savior for the environment. They have, they have all these wonderful things. But then the, the sort of 10th thing they asked about alcohol, you know, sort of, well, alcohol is legal. And it's really harmful. We all know that alcohol makes you crazy, makes you drunk and violent and terrible. If alcohol is worse, shouldn't we have a better alternative that's legal? Isn't it inconsistent not to legalize marijuana? And you're right, Aaron, that was actually the top sort of highest level of support was for that argument. So it is a very powerful argument, but I, I, I don't think it's a good one for a couple of reasons. I mean, why is alcohol legal? Let's think about that. Is alcohol legal because, you know, more people, you know, sort of it's good for you and people say, well, you know, we need more people drinking in our community. It would be get, it would be good for us. No, alcohol is legal because it's been accepted since before the Old Testament. It's been used by the majority of Western civilization for, you know, 3000 years mm -hmm. at least. Right. And so it, we're stuck with it. Right. It's here. And prohibition. You know, there are a lot of prohibition. Alcohol prohibition is a fascinating time in American history. Just amazing, you know, to look at like the political forces, the fact that it was liberal progressives that wanted it because they saw it as a breakdown of the family and society, et cetera. But alcohol prohibition wasn't going to last in this country and in most countries because too many people want to drink. Too many people have been drinking for thousands of years. And when you have 60 to 70% of the population doing something yeah. regularly, you it's very hard to prohibit that, right? So- Marijuana is different. First of all, it has not been used by the majority of Western civilization for thousands of years. It's been used by ancient civilizations, although nothing like the marijuana of today, but a version of it has been used, but not by the majority of people. And, and, and even, not even today is it used by the majority of people regularly. So I, I think like with alcohol, we're stuck with it. And, and to me, it's sort of like two wrongs don't make a right. And kind of this, you know, consistency yeah. is the hobgoblin of small minds like like because your headlights are broken we don't need to break tail light our tail lights too like we can we can sort of learn from that even if we can't go back and and not make the same i would argue mistake twice because if anybody in public health could flip a switch on anything i promise you the majority of public health people would flip a switch on alcohol and say you know what let's not have it in our history but we can't do that well so but let's you know and and i, I want to sort of go from there to the more abstract question because i think that 
one view is from the, the sort of cost and benefits of consumption, your argument is sort of a contingent one. Look, alcohol is harmful, but it sort of is what it is. We got to live with that. Mm. But we don't have to live with marijuana in the same way. I mm. think there's another sort of more mm. rights-oriented view that says, mm. why are you trying to stop me from putting things in my body? Whether it be right. alcohol or tobacco, which we permit people to do, or caffeine or marijuana or other yeah. drugs. You know, and I, I, I think there's a very persuasive view in the American context yeah. where there are lots of things that we think, are, you know, we, we tend to think of yeah. like language. So, so what do you say to the person who sort of yeah. views this as a, a bodily autonomy issue? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that is a persuasive argument. However, you know, I would argue that we need, you know, there are, there are effects on others. So it's not just, it not, it's not something that necessarily only affects you, but also furthermore, I don't really care if you're an adult and you want to smoke a joint. Like I, I, I'm not that much of a downer. Like I really, I could, you know, sort of could care less. I'm really concerned about this idea that we're going to commercialize it and promote it. So if you had a thing where you said, well, we're going to allow people to grow their own weed. And, you know, as long as they're not getting in a car or taking care of people or coming to work, I, which is a huge issue, by the way, in a workplace now or whatever, you know, you can do what you want. And, I don't care. Like I, I from from rights point of view, like that's not my beef. My beef is what with what we're doing, which is we are actively promoting, commercializing it. We are totally lying about the medical effects. We are putting people at risk. We're giving them false information. As a federal government, we're really doing nothing in terms of raising awareness about it. I mean, I think it's a very interesting time from that perspective. And so, you know, I, I think that there that there is a very good case to be made that 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 what we're doing is is really problematic so if an individual wants to use i think they should be given the the, the correct information i mean i think most of america has wrong information about marijuana they, they don't read scientific medical journals they're not seeing the eight point loss in iq that can happen the quintupling risk of a psychotic break the you know the tripling risk of suicide and ideation and follow through i mean they're not seeing that among the heavy users that we see who read the journals so there needs to be better education at the very least. So, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I, I agree with that, but I think there are limits. How how would that argument apply to something like pornography, right? Because mm. someone could say, well, I mean, consenting adults have the right to post these videos of themselves, whatever, and you have the right to watch it. Okay, yeah, yeah that all works in theory, but like in practice, there are these giant commercial conglomerates yeah. that, often treat women horribly, profit off of, yeah. you know, effect, something that's either rape or very close to it. I, it seems like your argument, it doesn't necessarily imply like throwing, you know, the photographers in jail, but it, no. it certainly could be used to justify a much more restrictive regime than the one we currently have. Yeah, well, look, we, I, we don't, so... With with the group I started when I left the White House, I started it on purpose with someone from the right, someone from the left, we, to be nonpartisan. And the whole point of it was to skew this false dichotomy that's out there that we either have to criminalize and give people, you know, criminal records or whatever violations, or we have to legalize and commercialize. And and that I think is is you know why people are voting yes on these initiatives is they're not given a better alternative. In fact, we did some polling with Emerson College, which is one of the most respected pollsters out there, who basically well, we 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 broke out the policies to be a lot more specific and many more people supported decriminalization or medical marijuana. And de when I say decriminalization, I mean not criminalizing individual use. 
they were much more enthusiastic about that than they were about legalization and commercial legalization when because they're given an option. But on these ballot initiatives, they're not given an option, either yes or no. And by voting no, it's like implicitly you want to throw people in jail. And, you know, we're trying to say there's there are many other things you can do right. besides that. So, yeah. And I, and I also think there are qualitative differences between something like pornography or prostitution and marijuana use and drug use that we don't necessarily have to get into. But I, I do think there are actual differences when comparing. But again, my thing is that it's not so much about the individual user. It's about sort of this idea of commercializing and treating it like alcohol, which is like the last model for public health we should be mimicking for safety. So, so I think I think when we talk about that space between legalization, between criminalization, and legalization, and 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 this is sort of a a concept that you see a lot. <laughs> excuse me, in the drug policy literature, right? You were alluding earlier to the guys at Rayon, who, when states were yeah. first talking about legalization, they had this whole spectrum of possible oh, yeah. on the table. Yeah, which I no, think I is always it. really important to remember. <laughs> and indeed, small possession of marijuana has been decriminalized in oh. many states since the nineteen seventies. Oh my god! Um, in most states, in most states. But so, so, so I think the part of the, <laughs> excuse me, space that you're talking about is how the state as a, as a, an entity that makes public moral statements respond, engages with marijuana as an issue. And I think that's a, that, that, that's an area where, you know, on the one hand, lots of people in public health would like to say that's exactly what the state should be doing. On the other hand, that's a place where people were alarmed by the idea of, you know, the state saying the substance is good and the substance is bad. How do you how do you think about that? And and you know, do you think there are domains where that's more and less appropriate? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that I think that a lot of this is the you know the value that an individual or a society ascribes to some harm, and we're all going to have different rating scales. I mean, you might find drunk drugged driving a lot bigger of an issue than workplace issues or than kids using, or you might find kids using a bigger issue than, you know, a smaller issue, I mean, than an adult's right to use or whatever. So th th at the end of the day, this is going to be like a judgment of that. I, I'm just concerned that essentially what we're doing from a real practical point of view is we're walking into the same trap we did for tobacco. You know, tobacco has been used for thousands and thousands of years. It only became deadly in the last hundred years or so. I mean, tobacco was never, it's never good for you to smoke anything, whether, you know, it's in a pipe or something where it would before cigarettes. And that's never good for you, but it wasn't killing people at the, anywhere near the rate as when we, when big tobacco invented the cigarette. And in some ways, I think marijuana is very similar. And I think we're, we have to really realize what we're dealing with today. We're dealing with something that's not a plant. It's not what it used to be. It's been genetically bred to be, you know, much more potent. And so you basically have, this industry that's making a, a natural product very unnatural and very dangerous. And that's what happened with tobacco. We It only started killing people once we invented the cigarette in the Industrial Revolution and once we allowed big tobacco to essentially say what they want. And we're still playing catch up. It kills 400,000 people a year still. And we regret most of what we allowed them to do. I think we're going to end up regretting a lot of this. I don't know when, but 50 years, 100 years, 20 years, I'm not sure. I think that regret will happen, but I think it is that I think a society needs to stand for, you know, there is there is something that we there are things that we want to encourage and things we want to discourage as a government. And, you know, we have speed limits because we want to discourage speeding. It doesn't mean that everybody who speeds gets into a car crash or everyone who doesn't wear a seatbelt gets into a car crash. But as a society, we're we we, we take 
stances all the time about how we want to live in a free yet safe society. And uh, right. I, I think this falls into that. I, I mean, so to kind of alter the alcohol question a little bit, how would you feel about a ban on tobacco or cigarettes? Not putting sure. people in jail for it, but you know, not yeah. allowing these to be sold on the market. So cigarettes is a nicotine is a really interesting case because it was something that obviously we used to have like more than 50 percent of people using. And again, I think it's very difficult once you get sort of the majority in most places using something it, that is difficult to sort of say we're going to outright ban. So what did we do for cigarettes? We essentially we, we put a muzzle on tobacco companies a little bit, although they evolved with e-cigarettes, but that's a more complicated discussion. But essentially, we, we, we reversed the usage of cigarettes. I mean, there's very few, I mean, the, the, you know, look at the numbers, it's been a huge reduction because of public education, because of, you know, suing the tobacco companies and laws. I mean, we are putting laws on smoking. That's why we reduced it. That's the irony I have. People say, well, laws don't work with marijuana. We don't need any, and it's safer if we don't have any. These are the same people that want to ban, you know, 20 ounce Coke and, and, and cigarettes. I'm just like, wait a minute. Like you, you, you have to apply it everywhere to be consistent. But what, what I would say to answer your question about that is that, you know, I think now we're to the point where we have less of a need for legalizing cigarettes actually. And maybe I would go to the point where would it be like more of a prescription model for those already using so that we can then taper them off and, and transition them to, you know, a less harmful alternative and then ideally taper them off of everything i think there's an argument for that because there wouldn't be an argument for that in 1980 in 1980 we would we would have had to do what we did which is start the train of education to get where we are now 30 40 years later but but there is an argument for cigarettes for alcohol there isn't a great argument because it's so ubiquitous and at the very least we could do more to restrict we could do a lot more when it comes to you know what we do to marketing college environments because we know that addiction starts you know no one's addicted to drugs unless you start using before you're age 25 i mean it's very unlikely you, even those who were using abusing oxycontin because they were overprescribed it when they were 50 years old you know because of an injury the vast majority of those people had a drug problem that preceded their injury. Even if they were in recovery, they were susceptible. So, so we got it. You know, twenty-five is really the, the age to think about. And I also do think age limits work. So I wouldn't lower it to eighteen, even though we know a lot of eighteen-year-olds who, who drink. But essentially, I would put a lot more restrictions on alcohol. But you couldn't ban it. Yeah. So let's and you know I think we we've only a little bit of time left. But in that time, I want to talk. We've been talking instead of big. Theoretical terms, I'm talking about concrete policy. We've talked about, you know, don't legalize, do decriminalize. What does that actually mean in practice? Because as I said, there's a lot of policy gray space. What 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 is the marijuana regime that you think makes sense and is preferable? Just sort of broad strokes. Well, first and foremost, regardless of the legal policy, we need m much better education on what today's marijuana is and how it, it's harmful. I mean, m Americans think marijuana is less harmful than a lot of things that are, that are just not true. Even when you look at alcohol, one-to-one, -one, you can make a strong argument for marijuana being more harmful. I don't like to go down that path of comparisons necessarily, but the point is that, because it's, it's fraught with complication, but the point is we need education regardless of what we do legally. Legally, what I would say is you could have a regime where if someone wanted to grow a small amount, if somebody was using in the privacy of their own home or in, in conjunction with another crime, it's not something that you would like tack on and add time for and use as an excuse to round people up. But that would leave a regime where 
you still, you have an underground market for it. Yes. And people say, are, do you want drug dealers to survive? Well, no, of course not. But the, the, I think you have to enforce those, those drug laws for, on dealers as well. But I would rather have a black market where 5% of people are using than a legal market combined with an illegal market where 30% of people were using. I think it's no contest what's better. In fact, the the underground market for marijuana is relatively nonviolent. It is really friends and family. It's not like you, this idea that you go to the shady dealer on the corner who has, you know, a trench coat selling you all kinds of drugs, you know, in the, you know, is just a, a myth from commercials from when I was a kid. It's not the reality of it. So I would essentially, yeah, have that, but I would really try and discourage use and just educate people on, you know, what this whole thing is all about. When, when you sort of talk about, or is, sorry, is there, is there room for sort of some of the, the alternative marijuana models that we talked, we sort of alluded to. So for example, marijuana state stores are one approach that I think is sort of interesting where you're really, it's a much more effective way to internalize the, the bad behavior and turn it into a public, a public good. What do you make of those alternative, of alternative models like that? I'd certainly rather have them than what we have now in, in states. So I'm not against them by any means. I don't think that's ideal. I think ideal would be not to sell it at all but legally. But if you were going to do that, we should have that. In fact, in states that have legalized, we've really argued for things like that. We've argued for THC limits, which, you know, the industry fights very hard. The industry relies on you know, essentially addiction. I mean, that you, you make money when, when a small number, it doesn't have to be a large number. It could be a small number of people who, you know, use your product all the time. That's what you need. And to use your product all the time, you got to build up tolerance. You need increasing levels of THC. And so that's where they make their money. So they hate it when we talk about that, even though during these campaigns, you hear proponents say, well, we could regulate it and put limits on it. And that's why we have to legalize it because we're going to really regulate it. We're not able to regulate it at all anywhere. That, that is just not happening. And in this, in our current society, it's not going to happen anytime soon. But I would argue, you know, we do try. And so I would put those limits. I'm fine with all those things as an alternative to sort of the commercial model, for sure. Do I think it's a realistic alternative to the commercial model? No, because it hasn't been done anywhere here. And it, I don't think it's going to be done anytime soon. And then just, you know, before we go to closing thoughts, I guess we're talking at the ideal. What do you see actually happening over the next legal marijuana is in the ballot in five states as i alluded to it yeah time. what do you think is the is the medium term trajectory for marijuana what do you expect <sighs> well i don't i don't think it's gonna really what'd you say i said are you a pessimist an optimist i'm always an optimist i mean look in we were supposed to legalize marijuana and psychedelics in 1977 you know and it clearly didn't happen by the way one other thing just to look out for is that let's not think that it stops with marijuana. Yeah. These folks want to legalize everything. I mean, they're already the, the largest lobbying group for legalization, even though they hide behind it. They just tweeted a video yesterday about the how cocaine isn't that bad for you. I mean, it's like, re, see the writing on the wall. Psychedelics are going to be voted on in Colorado. I, I imagine that's going to be a closer vote than people think. It's going to be voted on in two weeks to legalize it for any use. And by the way, there might be medical use for it, but that should be done in the medical realm. The FDA, NIH, like actual doctors, researchers, not by, we shouldn't be voting on things. And that's another thing I would just back up. I think referenda are a horrible way to make policy. And I know that's sort of very anti-progressive and populist of me, but there is just too much money right now in politics. There are too many ways to deceive. People do not know what they're voting for. In fact, when you tell voters, you know, when you show them a, a sample ballot, they often vote yes when they think they're voting no, they're voting no when they vote yes. I mean, it's a mess. So I, I we need to look at all of that. But in terms of the short, medium term, whether five states legalize or not in November, I don't think it's going to matter. 
I, it only really, really will matter if states don't legalize. It'll kind of send a message. If they legalize, it's just going to, okay, five more states, whatever, so many have done it. I don't think people aren't really keeping track at this point. So I don't think it matters that much if they do. I don't see Congress moving on this anytime soon. Democratic Congress couldn't get the votes. They really couldn't at all. And it wasn't just about 60 votes. They couldn't get 50 votes to do this. So they're not, and I don't think we're going to have a fully Democratic Congress in the next session. You know, what happens in the, with the next president obviously depends on who it is. Obviously, uh, Harris or, you know, it's going to be a different person than if, uh, you know, DeSantis comes in. So, you know, we don't we can't have a crystal ball. But, you know, we've been hearing that this is supposed to be inevitable for 40 years. And on the federal level, it hasn't happened. So I'm a little bit more of an optimist. I think there are still ways where this isn't happening for a while. On the other hand, we have a a a broken system right now because we have states doing whatever they want, completely violating federal laws on on marijuana. Well, why wouldn't they violate federal laws on psychedelics, cocaine, heroin. I mean, there's a lot. Of, it's just I don't think it's a good precedent when right now we just have the federal government completely disengaged from this from a legal perspective. Yeah, I mean, I guess do you want to go to closing thoughts? Yeah, I was about to ask I, Aaron. What well, is, I, you know, I, I, what's well, your take well, that, that, that to me is a very interesting note to end on because it, over the course of the conversation, it seems to me that what we've kind of established is that marijuana the, the policy debate over marijuana legalization kind of embodies both the advantages and disadvantages of a kind of fragmentary American system of governance. Because on the one hand, as you say, you have all these special interests that kind of can help capture things. There's lots of money in politics. It, you know, people don't know what they're voting for. It leads to bad policy. All of these are familiar and generalizable critiques that have been made about all sorts of other issues. On the other hand, as you also say, we everyone's like, ah, it's inevitable, but it, it doesn't get done because there's so much gridlock and it's it's hard to get things done. And this seems like a case in which the Amer as as I think often happens, the American system of government doesn't necessarily solve the problems it creates, but it's good at preventing the problems it creates from getting too horrible too quickly mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and so i don't know i i just i think it's a kind of it, it's almost a microcosm of a lot of other debates mm -hmm. we have in in a mm -hmm. way that i don't think people realize and mm -hmm. i don't know that's interesting i also yeah my other takeaway is that the slippery slope people are often right and the slippery slope is often a good heuristic it's not a fallacy this is a recurring theme on the show but you know people will use edge cases to push through more radical policies we've talked about this with for example the transgender issue and all sorts of things you mm -hmm. take like a very hard case and you mm -hmm. establish a precedent and then it goes way further than anyone thought because you're like oh we're, this is just for this one little case and then no it snowballs so yeah i mean those are those are my takes charles yeah, you know, I, I, I think we only sort of scratched the surface on the mm -hmm. sort of broader question of how the state should think about advocacy for substance use and more generally vicious behavior, more generally mm -hmm. social formation. This is the sort of question of how, the state making moral statements. And, you know, I, I, I'm sort of sympathetic to Kevin's point that there's a democratic constraint on what you can and cannot do. And my, you know, my response in the other direction is that Levels of alcohol consumption fell durably during Prohibition and remained oh, yeah. well below prior cool. rates. I think didn't rebound until the 70s, 1980s, following the end of Prohibition. This is, you know, there's a real effect of of the state making the state making a statement about what is and is not acceptable. So, you know, I I, I guess my take from the conversation is 
one one sort of potent avenue that I think is under under theorized is regardless of the legal status of marijuana, how can people how how can the state sort of be a more active player? Should the state be a more active player? If so, how can it be a more active player in discouraging its use or informing people about its use? What yeah. does that look like? How does it interact to the public health idiom? Uh right. should it interact to the public health and- idiom? Yeah, and right now it's all screwed up because states have an incentive to say that what they're doing is great. They have no incentive on the legal states to sort of show the flaws because then it's like, oh, well, we did this experiment and it's not going well over here. And that, you know, there's just so the incentives are all screwed up and we're sort of really walking blindly still on this. On that, on that very cheery note, why don't we do just a couple of recommendations? Aaron, do you have a recommendation for our listeners? I do. It's it's a it's a recommendation cum personal story. So for those of our listeners who have not tried marijuana, here is my recommendation. We don't we don't have any do. listeners who have smoked pot. They're we don't have this kind of we don't <laughs> yeah, have absolutely no. Our, they're very none, yeah, but 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 none. Right. But so 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 my advice if you're going to do it is to have way, way, way too much of it on the first time. Because this is what I did. What happened was I had never done it before. I got home from, this is like my first year of college. I was hanging out with high school buddies. And I was like, eh, you know, some of them smoke pot. All right, I'll try it. Like, might as well, you know, I'm not going to do it in college. It'll be like a thing I do occasionally over the summer. What's the harm? I'll try it. Now, my high school buddies heard this and thought, oh, we have an excuse to get Aaron high. This will be fun. Mm. So when one of their parents was like out of town, you know, we all are at this guy's house and we go into his garage and we start taking it from a joint. And I, I bear in mind, I'd never been high. So <laughs> I have, I, I take one, one hit, I cough and they're like, hey, you got to keep going. All right. Take another, no, I cough more. Got to keep going. All right. I end up taking like 13 hits from this joint. <laughs> Wow. Having never been high before. And I was like, I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling. Oh, wait, now I'm feeling it. And then I end up walking outside and I literally like I cannot stand up. I have to lie on the ground for five solid minutes because the sensory overload is too much. You know, I feel this like weird moisture on my hand, and that's just like my friend's dog or something. I'm like, what? That felt very weird. We play, tried to play Super Smash Bros. and I was very uncoordinated and just it was it was a complete complete shit show. Bottom line is the next day I went home very tired and felt feeling out of it, and it's like you know what, I was kind of sympathetic to legalizing and normalizing this drug, and now I'm not. Absolute mm. like I don't like this. This I I don't understand why anyone would do it. It's way too much. Now, granted, I think had I had less, I may have had a different experience, but. No, it's terrible, and and I and I've never I've never had it since, and I've never sought it out since because it was so bad. So if you're looking yeah. for a way to be cool and have street cred and say, oh, I've tried marijuana, but you're worried that you're gonna go down a dark, horrible path where you get addicted and are just a stoner, the simple way to avoid that is to have so much on your first time yeah. that it's just, that you couldn't fathom ever putting yourself through such a horrible experience again. So that is my recommendation. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to top that. <laughs> my my recommendation this week is The Age of Addiction, which is by a professor named David Cordwright. It's a it's a novel a novelization of Aaron's first experience talking pot. No, it's a history partial history of the consumption of addictive substances in America, 
partial sort of court rights theory. Court court right is a is a he's a historian of all of the topics that I like, which is to say drugs and violence. But he's written a number of books for the history of drugs, and this is his more sort of theoretical book about the way in which addiction has been incorporated into the processes of contemporary social life within the legal and the illegal domains. I think it's a really interesting book. I encourage everyone to check it out. I think it was sort of helpful for rewiring my thinking in terms of breaking down the legal legal dichotomy to think about what substances really are. It's a good book. I like a lot of his work, actually. On that note, Kevin, do you have recommendations for our listeners? Well, I'll show you, uh, I'll meet your David Courtright and I'll show you a David Musto, who's kind of the original drug policy historian that if you're interested in sort of the history of narcotics control and the forces pushing forward and against it and that really up until about the early 2000s, unfortunately he passed away, but I would invite you to check out a book called The American Disease, but, but I, I love David Courtright's stuff too. On what Aaron said, I have to say it reminds me of the Maureen Dowd experience. So I invite you all to read Maureen Dowd's New York Times column from maybe 2013 <laughs> or 2014. Where the, yeah, yeah, where she had the edible in the hotel, she thought it was yeah. great. And then she like said that she thought she was going to die. And she was like, I'll never do this again. What the heck did they just legalize? So check that out. And then shameless plug, the book that my second book, which took me a, lo- a long time to write called Smokescreen, What the Marijuana Industry Doesn't Want You to Know. It was interviews with dozens of people, went behind the scenes. I think it's an interesting kind of insight and story into both marijuana addiction, but also marijuana policy and the sort of dynamics around it. Um, I also talk about my time in the Obama administration, un- unraveling these policies and kind of how I felt in the middle of that the sort of debate and discussion that was going on when these states started to legalize sure. and, and really open up marijuana laws. So you can check that out, too. Well, I want to recommend on top of worrying doubt, really the best story of consuming marijuana comes from the former Free Beacon columnist, Matthew Walther. Time oh. that he met, that he he consumed an edible. Um, mm-hmm. I recommend you find that one on the Free Beacons website. On that note, at the end of our recommendations, I think that's about all the time that we have. So, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on Institutionalized. Thank you all, Aaron and Charles. It was really a pleasure. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, joints you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. That's about all the time that we have. So until next time, I'm Charles Finn Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. You'll join us again soon. 